This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. My guest for this episode is Sandor Katz, author of Wild Fermentation, The Art of Fermentation, and The Revolution Will Not Be Microwaved. If you've practiced any kind of fermentation and went looking for a recipe, reference, or just to read about the wee yeasties and bacteria that transform our foods with their microbial magic, then you've probably read something by Sandor. And frankly, I recommend that you read even more. His books, like what you'll hear in the following interview, are filled with passionate personal presentations, balanced with a reservation towards any claim or information that sounds too good to be true. Can fermented foods change your life? Yes, but not in a miraculous way. What they will do is change your relationship with food, health, the cycles of the world, and the context of your diet. Before I step up on a soapbox as an evangelist for these foods and beverages, let's hear what Sandor has to share about wild fermentation. Then, Sandor, if you can give us a bit of your biography and background and how you came to fermentation, and we can take the conversation from there. Sure. So I grew up in New York City, and connection to fermentation as a kid was just that one of my favorite foods was sour pickles, what people outside of New York City might know as kosher dill. You know, nobody in my family was making them. We weren't talking about fermentation, but this was just a, like a flavor that really I've always been drawn to one of the flavors, distinctive flavors of of fermentation. For a couple of years, when I was in my mid-20s, I was following a macrobiotic diet, and macrobiotics was my first introduction to the idea that there are special health benefits in fermented foods, and in particular, macrobiotic stresses the digestive benefit of pickles and other kinds of live culture foods. And I started noticing during that time when I ate my beloved sour pickles or sauerkraut or other kinds of fermented vegetables that I could literally feel saliva squirting out under my tongue. So I began to associate these foods in a really pretty tangible way with getting my digestive juices flowing, as it were. But what really spurred me to start practicing fermentation is 22 years ago, 1993, I moved from New York City to a community in Tennessee, spurred by some big changes in my life. And my first season gardening, when I realized that in a row of cabbage, all the cabbage is ready at about the same time, I started thinking about other practical implications of fermentation, and I learned how to make sauerkraut. And then from sauerkraut, it just was a slippery slope. I started playing with a sourdough starter for baking bread. I started making yogurt and playing around with cheese making. I learned how to make miso. I started playing around with country wines, making elderberry and blueberry wine and such. And then I just became obsessed with all things fermented. And then that led me into some teaching, and then that led me into writing, et cetera, et cetera. But I have no formal background. I certainly have never studied microbiology or food science or even working in a culinary school. I'm really pretty much a self-taught experimentalist. You just began with some shredded cabbage in a crock and some salt and went from there? Yeah, actually, I learned how to make a from the joy of cooking. <laughs> oh, I, I think about the bookshelf that I have in all of my cookbooks, and the joy of cooking is the one that I keep going back to for some of the basics. And to hear that that's where you learned to make sauerkraut from is just a <laughs> an interesting little connection. Though mine was having 
a whole chicken set on the counter in front of me and handed a chef's knife and told break it apart and having no idea how to begin. Yeah, yeah, they've got some good diagrams in there. <laughs> yeah, and your book, Wild Fermentation, is by far as far as I know, short of Charlie Papazian's book on home brewing, one of the most well-regarded and well-read books on any kind of fermentation. Thank you. I have a more recent book called The Art of Fermentation, which is a more in-depth treatment of the topic informed by 10 more years of experience. And I have copies of both of those. And it was, I had read Wild Fermentation years ago. And then I was at the Mother Earth News Fair two years ago and saw The Art of Fermentation in the bookstore and was really fascinated by how much additional research you had done into different fermentation practices from around the world. And I didn't realize how many different cultures had practiced fermentation and the different foods that were available. What was it like researching that book and expanding upon what you had initially written? The learning curve has been continual. Really, from the from before wild ferment, before I even thought of wild fermentation, just my learning curve about fermentation has never stopped, but it really was vastly enhanced by the publication of Wild Fermentation and me posting a website and the teaching opportunities that Wild Fermentation opened up for me. Just by spending some years doing fermentation workshops and public speaking about fermentation and putting myself out there and being on the web, I just started hearing from people and started hearing from people in different parts of the world who had read my book and were encountering foods that they didn't understand and asking me questions about them. Immigrants from different parts of the world who were trying to figure out how to recreate foods of the old country or who just knew how to do it perfectly well and wanted to share a ferment that I had overlooked. You know, other people like myself who are just experimentalists and try lots of things, old people with memories of things that their parents or grandparents used to do that had fallen by the wayside. So I feel like putting myself out there talking about fermentation just meant that I started learning about things I would have had no way to learn about. So really, from the time I started my book tour and putting up my website, I was just accumulating new information. And within a few months, I realized, like, oh, okay, wild fermentation is pretty limited. I should really expand upon this at some point. So I just kept on filing away bits of information. And I also started getting invited to do some international teaching. And anytime I get to travel out of the country, I encounter different kinds of, of ferments. My fermentation education has been vastly enhanced by the publication of my book to the point where I felt like I needed to put out another more thorough book. And the learning curve continues. I mean, fermentation is such a vast realm of human practice that no, no one person, no one reference book could encapsulate it all. I think of just the books that I have on my shelf for fermenting alcohol between mead making, wine making, beer, and all kinds of others. I probably have a dozen on my shelf, let alone to be now exploring foods. And those are only the ones that are most prominent in this part of the world. I mean, there's a vast world of rice-based alcoholic beverages all across Asia. And those are, we don't even think of those in our sort of pantheon of alcoholic beverages, except possibly sake, the, the Japanese interpretation of it. There's the world of sorghum and millet beers across Africa. So, I mean, 
even it's staying in the realm of, of alcoholic beverages. I mean, there's just so many variations beyond the global superstars that everybody knows about. With what you said about wild fermentation being rather limited and, le and leading to your second book, I really enjoyed reading wild fermentation as a start, as an introduction to this realm of foods, because it wasn't something that I was familiar with. I've only ever eaten homemade sauerkraut once, and I that was ooh, 25 years ago at this point. And in reading that book, it really started to make me re-examine the foods that I eat and going through the cabinet and looking at my pickles and realizing that they're all vinegar-based and picking up sauerkraut at the grocery store and realizing that that's also that same kind of a pickling solution in order to make those sour flavors and now seeking out where do we find these kinds of foods other than to make them ourselves and at the same time being encouraged to make them. I went out immediately after reading it and I made a quart of, how do you pronounce it? Is it Tej, the Ethiopian honey wine? Yeah. And then also started my first batch of kombucha and now seeking out some vegetables and things to brine and get running with bacteria. Wild fermentation certainly has all the basic information that you need to get started. Fermentation is not rocket science. You don't need to know about microbiology in order to practice fermentation. And the people who practiced fermentation for 10,000 years and up until 150 years ago didn't specifically know about bacteria, and and that didn't impede them in, in, in the least. So you don't need all that information to practice fermentation, and certainly wild fermentation has all the information that you need to get started, but it's also an infinite realm of human sort of practice and cultural information, and I'm just aware of it as something that has lots of interesting aspects to it. You don't have to know all of that in order to practice it, but there's a lot there that's interesting. And then with what you expand on in The Art of Fermentation, those other fermented foods that are outside that normal realm of, especially here in Pennsylvania with a large Pennsylvania Dutch and a German background, there are only certain things that I had encountered, those ideas of those rice-based ferments or something like tempeh. I'd purchased it in the past and had some of those things, but never realized what was involved in that process and how these are cultural foods from different traditions, but also living nourishments for our bodies. Oh, absolutely. Fermentation unlocks nutrients, pre-digests food and makes nutrients much more bioavailable for us. And then there's the live bacteria themselves, which I think... In our current context, the bacteria themselves are arguably the most profound benefit of least ferments that haven't been heated after their fermentation. But there are many of them, and they all have to do with making nutrients more bioavailable. And one thing that you talk about in both of your books is about your health and how not that ferments have helped to relieve any of your conditions, but how they have helped you through some of the symptoms of what you've experienced. And it was something interesting for me to read that because I have celiac disease and I've been experimenting with some sourdoughs and other foods and seeing if that had an impact on my ability to digest some of those grains such as wheat, barley, and rye. And what have you found? And I found that a good sourdough, especially one from a mature starter, is something that I can tolerate. It's something that I'm 
still experimenting with. I want to talk with my gastroenterologist to see about how far I can go with this experiment. But so far, I haven't had any kind of symptoms or side effects when eating those sourdoughs, which has been really interesting to be able to enjoy some of those foods that I was missing. And also that when I consume some of those live foods and beverages, that it limits the impact when I eat some of these foods. I've only been doing this for a couple of months, experimenting a little here and there, but it's been promising so far and I look forward to trying some more. And the bacteria that are present in the mixed culture of a sourdough actually break down gluten. In terms of some other common food intolerances, a lot of the problems that people have with say soybeans get broken down by fermentation. A lot of the, the lactose in milk gets broken down by fermentation. So a lot of the foods which are most notorious for people having various intolerances and sensitivities are vastly improved by the process of fermentation. The compounds that people have such a hard time with get broken down by the fermentation. Some of the theories that I've read about why some of these allergies and food issues have arisen in the past several decades is the hygiene theory that we're too clean and not exposing ourselves to some of these bacteria and yeasts and other things in the environment. And I'm wondering if that reintroduction of wild ferments with local bacteria and yeasts and other fermenting agents has something to do with why fermented foods have the impact that they do on some of these issues. There's so much that we don't know, and I don't, I really don't want to speculate. But sure, all kinds of people have reported that when they start incorporating live culture foods into their diet, many different kinds of symptoms improve. And so what you just described is generally known as the hygiene hypothesis, the idea that we're developing all of these autoimmune disorders precisely as a result of lack of exposure to bacteria early in life because that exposure to bacteria is really what educates the immune system. Beyond that, if we look at the immune system and what it is in an ongoing way, it's all about interaction with bacteria. And so simply even eating bacterially rich foods can stimulate improved immune function. And that's one of the major benefits of any kind of probiotic therapy is that ingestion of bacteria, whether it's in the form of little capsules or whether it's in the form of traditional fermented foods, stimulates some immune function. But as for the underlying reasons for these new epidemics, there really is no consensus. There are theories that they have to do with basically the diminishment of biodiversity in our gut bacteria. There are theories that they are based on the use of Roundup and other agricultural chemicals that are affecting the microbiota of the soil and therefore our guts. There are a number of theories that all have to do with bacteria in different ways. And I don't think that we really have the information yet to know which of the theories, or maybe it's more than one of them, explain these dramatic new dynamics that we've been seeing over the last couple of decades. And throwing that question out there, I didn't want to imply in any way that fermented foods were some kind of a miracle cure-all, because that's something that I really found refreshing in reading both of your books, is that you're very clear about what we do and don't know, and what's being reported as some of the health benefits, but that these are not something that... A lot of times I see advertisements for products and services that represent themselves as being able to fix anything out there, and they 
remind me of those late Victorian advertisements for the latest pill or potion that will cure whatever ails you. And that was something that I really liked about the way that you wrote about this material is that you could see improvement. They may help you, but there's still a lot more to know. We can't say that just eating yogurt is going to change your life. Absolutely. There are profound benefits to eating live culture foods. And at the same time, there's a lot of ridiculous, unsubstantiated hype. I guess I've seen it most in the marketing of kombucha. And I love kombucha. I don't mean to to dismiss kombucha by saying that, okay, it's not necessarily going to cure diabetes and prevent you from developing gray hair. I think that when people make these claims that like eating a particular food or drinking a particular beverage is going to cure a particular disease, that's just an unrealistic expectation. Introducing a single food into your diet is not going to cure a particular disease or is extremely unlikely to cure a particular disease. These things are more complex and multifactorial than that. And it doesn't mean that it won't help. I think that incorporating live culture foods by live culture foods, bacterially fermented foods that have not been cooked or heat processed after they've been prepared. That would include yogurt and kefir. It would also include sauerkraut and kimchi, potentially different kinds of beverages. But these live culture foods can potentially improve digestion, improve overall immune function, as well as there's all this exciting news looking at the the connection between brain chemistry and gut bacteria. Ingesting these foods actually can can even improve your mental health. But saying that they can improve your digestion, improve your immune function, improve your mental health doesn't mean that one particular food is going to cure a particular disease. It has a a broader effect than that. And I certainly have heard plenty of you know, anecdotal stories that, that people have cured particular diseases, most often chronic digestive problems by incorporating live culture foods. And certainly there's nothing, there's nothing to lose. These foods are, they're wonderful. They're not dangerous. Just to share a, a one particular statistic, there has never been one single case of food poisoning documented in the United States or any, anywhere else where our regulators have been networking from fermented vegetables. This is an extremely safe food. There's no risk to it. And the possible benefit is quite great, but we can't expect that eating sauerkraut is going to solve all of our problems. And I believe you wrote about this, though I may have read it somewhere else, that the with that safety of fermented foods, that the issue of food poisoning comes in with canning as a food preservation source. Yes and no. The only reason we all know the word botulism is that it's associated with canning. And the bacteria that causes botulism, Clostridium botulinum, is an extremely common soil bacteria. Probably none of us have ever eaten a vegetable that didn't have cells of Clostridium botulinum on them. They only develop in a totally anaerobic environment, which is extremely rare in the world that we live in. For the last 200 years since the invention of canning, canning is how botulism became to be widely known. The word botulist is much older than the technology of canning. The word botulist comes from the Latin word for sausage. Botulism historically was an obscure disease associated with fermented sausages, salamis. And in the center of a casing, you can create a totally anaerobic environment. And it doesn't mean that salamis are dangerous. We certainly have 
learned how to definitively prevent the development of this bacteria in salamis, and that's to use curing salts, sodium nitrite and nitrate. And this prevents the possibility of botulism developing before the salamis become acidic. But yeah, fermented vegetables, fermented raw plant material is just intrinsically safe. There's no case history of illness or food poisoning from it. Once you start dealing with meat and fish and milk, to some degree, these foods just intrinsically carry more risk. They have much higher protein levels. And so they draw different types of bacteria and they are a little bit more prone to the possibility of problems. It doesn't mean that these foods are dangerous or that you can't do them yourself at home. It just means that you need to have a really clear idea of the parameters, the environment that you're trying to create for the process to proceed in a predictable and safe way. One question that I had come in was about genetically modified foods and ferments. And as that came in, I also ran across an article that I'll look for and try to post in the show notes about the difference between organic, non-organic, and GMO sourdough starters and the difference in the bacterial communities in those different flowers. This is a topic that I don't know too much about, honestly. Okay. I can say for a thousand reasons that have nothing to do with fermentation, I would absolutely urge <laughs> anyone certainly to not support genetically modified agriculture and beyond that to support organic agriculture, to support local agriculture for a thousand reasons that really have nothing to do with fermentation. But it doesn't surprise me that small changes in the genetic makeup of the substrates would have implications for the fermentation process. But I, I can't really speak to this because I haven't read the article that you're talking about, and I don't know specifically what the findings are. I can tell you that we hear about the genetic modification of major food crops like soybeans and corn. What we don't hear about as much in the realm of genetic modification is how bacteria are being, have been genetically modified to produce enzymes that are widely used in the food processing industries. And they're used in such small proportions in foods that generally they don't even need to appear on the label. But this is just a huge invisible realm of genetic modification out there in the world. And that's one in your work. You haven't encountered any articles or had anything sent to you that speaks much about GMOs and fermentation and those impacts. I haven't read any studies like that at all, no. But if you have one, I'd, I'd be interested in seeing it. That's something that I'll see if I can find the article that I mentioned. And if I do, I'll send it to you. And also, yeah, I now want to dig a little bit more and see if there's anything that's been done in that regard, because I wonder about the evolution of bacteria because of how quickly they reproduce. More just kind of an academic. Yeah. And particularly in relation to some of the foods where, you know, upwards of 90% of what's being produced are genetically modified, something like soybeans. Fermentation is a traditional way of processing soybeans. But now that most of the soybeans are genetically modified, it's a very interesting question. I don't know. I always go out of my way to buy the organic stuff that's not genetically modified. And I'd be fascinated to see a study looking at how the microbial community of the ferment shifts as a result of the genetic modification. Sounds fascinating. 
There's a research study for someone out there in the audience. If uh, <laughs> A little less heavy and a little bit more lighthearted. I was wondering if in the experimentation that you've done and in your world travels, if there were any ferments that really surprised you in some way because of the flavor profile or you just really enjoyed more than you were expecting? Anything like that? <sighs> Let's think. Really, I generally enjoy them. Certainly, I have, I've encountered foods that were challenging, particularly like fish ferments can be very challenging. I've had a few encounters now with this Swedish style of fermented herring that's called surströmming. And it's definitely got a strong smell. It's definitely got a strong flavor. The flavor is not as strong as the smell. And the flavor actually is quite nice and has grown on me. It's not a food that I would eat a pound of it by itself, but that's not the tradition at all. It's like it's something that you make these little sandwiches out of. And you have a little bit of fish, a little bit of sour cream, a little bit of onion. You're absorbing the strong flavor in other kinds of ingredients, and then it, lives, it leaves this beautiful aftertaste. I think fish sauce is a common food that many people listening have certainly used it in cooking or eaten foods where it was used in cooking, but it's always used in a small proportion. And if you try to have a shot glass full of fish sauce, it's really strong. Fermentation creates strong flavors. And sometimes those flavors are much more acceptable if we mix a small amount into something where it just adds this little, this subtle hint of flavor complexity. Whereas if you tried to consume it pure, it just would be too strong. But I'm constantly being surprised by flavors. In June, I had the wonderful experience of teaching a series of workshops in Ecuador. And the organizers of the workshop got some indigenous people they knew to come with varied styles of chicha. And chicha is a is a corn beverage, corn-based beverage from the Andes Mountains in South America. And in Wild Fermentation, I had written about one ancient style of it, which involves chewing the corn. And I've had some really fun experiences with people making chewed corn beers. But what I learned in Ecuador is that's not the only way the chicha is made, that there's a lot of different styles of chicha. Some of them are made with fruit. Some of them are made with malting or sprouting the corn rather than chewing it. So, I, I mean, it's something that's just made in a lot of variation. And that's something that, that that's just a lesson that I learn over and over again in regard to lots of different kinds of ferments is very few of them are made in just a singular way. Generally, these important foods and beverages, as they diffuse across broad geographic areas, also diversify in terms of how they're made, what particular ingredients are incorporated, what is the process. And there ends up being just a huge amount of, of variation. And in Ecuador, I got to experience a little bit of the variation in chicha. But wherever I go, I just learned that these ferments are not, you know, they're not monolithic things. Like kimchi, you might have this idea of of what kimchi tastes like. But there are, you know, literally thousands of distinctive styles of kimchi from different places in different seasons. And at a certain level, it all comes down to family recipes. What is the secret that this grandma does to her kimchi that's a little bit different than her friend down the street? And just all of these ferments, 
ultimately come down to millions of distinctive family recipes that are all a little bit different. There is no singular way to make scrambled eggs. There's no single way to make kimchi. There's no single way to make chicha. There's no single way to make compost. (laughs) Your mention of kimchi, it was my first exposure to it was only about five years ago. And in mentioning all those varieties, there's a restaurant that I used to go to that I don't think that I was ever served the same kimchi twice there, that every time it was different as they would make a new batch. And that was just in one location with one family. Yeah, absolutely. And probably a lot of it depended on the season and what kinds of vegetables were available at market or if they had a garden from their garden. And that's really what's always driven fermentation practices. What is abundant? With that question of some ferments that really surprised you, were there any fermentation experiments that went wrong in a way that you weren't expecting? Not something that was a failure, but just something that surprised you the opposite direction of how it was when it was done. Let's see. Sure. I mean, I've certainly made all sorts of things that I had only read about where I had no idea what to expect when they were done. Generally, they they turn out great. Lord knows I, I have had my, my share of fermentation failures. There's There would be no way to just try to make something you've never even had and never have any failures. I certainly have had failures and I've had lots of pleasant surprises. I can't think of a single dramatic example of something that just turned out completely different from what I was, what I was expecting. I'll tell you something that I learned just this year that I have been loving making, and that is a Persian-style yogurt soda. It's called Dur. I can't quite pronounce it. It's that, that, that guttural sound at the end, but Dur. For years, I've been aware of this food. I sometimes would buy it in markets. The contemporary Persian recipe books all say basically add half yogurt, half bubbly water, mix it together, you have yogurt soda. But I knew that there had to be an older way because carbonated water is really pretty new in the scheme of things. And then what I learned from this uh, chef who I met who had gone to Iran to study Persian cooking was you make a starter from bulgur wheat and water. You know, bulgur, like any kind of a grain, once you cover it with water, you're awakening dormant microbial activity. So yeast and bacteria are there, but because the grain is dry, they haven't had water, they're not able to be active in breaking it down or digesting it. But as soon as you add water, they're awakened. So this uh, bulgur and water mixture starts to get bubbly. And then once it blooms, starts to get bubbly, then you pour the water off of the bulgur and mix a little bit of the bubbly water in with yogurt and give it a day and you have yogurt soda. It's a really simple, straightforward fermentation, really delicious. I'm always on the lookout for new things to learn about. And most often, there it's not a dramatic surprise what happens. One of the threads of conversation and in interviews on the show has been about rewilding and foraging. And I was wondering if you or anyone in your community forages and if you fermented some of those harvests. Sure. I've definitely done a lot of wild crafting for things to make beverages out of. I have often made a sassafras-based root beers where I dig up little sassafras seedlings and use their roots as the flavor base for the root beer. Certainly all kinds of wild fruits. Persimmons are my favorite wild fruit, but I've 
I've made lots of different persimmon-based ferments, tried a little bit with pawpaw-based ferments. Done a lot of working of wildcrafted herbs into sauerkrauts or meads, not necessarily as the prime ingredient, but as a as flavor note. Yeah, I think that any kind of foraging can certainly be incorporated into into a fermentation practice, into distinctive regional fermentation product. Elderberries, that's another one. I love to make elderberry wine, and that's something that's abundant around where I live. And someone can just use some of the basic rules that you have for brines or salting if they wanted to try fermenting wild greens? Absolutely. Yeah. You could essentially make sauerkraut out of dandelion greens if you want. Really what I'd recommend is mixing them doing a third dandelion greens with, let's say, two-thirds cabbage. But absolutely, they can be incorporated. And try doing just dandelion greens and see how you like it. I really encourage people to experiment. I have not tried everything there is to try. But I also encourage people to experiment in small batches. There's no reason to collect 450 pounds of dandelion greens and fill a 55-gallon barrel with them if you want to see how they taste. Better to pick a half a pound and do it in a pint-sized jar or something. That idea of the small batch is something that I took a lot of encouragement from because when I first began as a home brewer, most of the recipes were for five gallons. And if I was making mead or investing in whole grains or even just a brewing kit, that was a large out-of-pocket expense, as was all the equipment that was needed carboys and everything else. It was only later that I started to move to some small wine production and I realized how more affordable it was to get involved that way for my buckets and bottles and things. And that was something that I took from your book was about beginning with just a little bit. And it's like my first batch of Tej was only a quart using, I think, a cup or a cup and a half of honey. And then my kombucha is I did two one-quart mason jars to start those batches. And it's a really nice place to begin because you don't have that same investment. Like thinking of pickling crocs and things like that, the bigger they get, how much more you have to invest. I certainly agree with you that small batches can be very liberating. Yeah, you don't need to acquire the same kind of equipment. And more importantly, the stakes aren't as high in terms of the food resources you're putting in there. If you want to make your first batch of at a five-gallon scale, then you know that's a gallon of honey, which is an investment into something that you've never done before and you don't know exactly how it's going to go. And if you want to fill a 55-gallon barrel with vegetables to ferment, that's 450 pounds of vegetables. So that's just a huge investment. So I think small batches can be really liberating. And as you build confidence, then depending on your context, it might make sense to move to a larger batches or it might suit you just fine to stay working with small batches. Small and large obviously are, are relative. For a professional brewer, a five-gallon batch is a small batch, but when you're doing it for the first time, it's actually large. And I think that smaller batches are a great way to learn and a great way to experiment, absolutely. Where would you recommend someone begin with fermentation? Generally, I would encourage almost anybody to start with fermenting vegetables. One, one important reason being you don't need to find special starter cultures. Definitely could make miso or sake, but you need to find a special starter culture. You could make kombucha or kefir, but you need to find the starter culture. But there's all kinds of wonderful ferments that are not too difficult that you can make with the right starter culture, but 
Fermenting vegetables is a wild fermentation where the organisms you need are already present on all vegetables. Another thing is you don't need any special equipment. You might eventually decide that you want to invest in a beautiful ceramic crock, but like a, a jar that you have sitting in your pantry is already totally sufficient. Also, you don't have to wait for a very long time. You can really start enjoying the results of the fermentation after three or four days. It'll continue to get more sour as more days pass, but you can begin to enjoy it relatively quickly. It's incredibly beneficial for health, incredibly delicious condiment enhancement to almost anything that you would put it on. And it's 100% safe. There's never been any case history of food poisoning or, or illness. So I think it has a lot of fermenting vegetables has a lot to recommend it as a first fermentation project. All you do is chop vegetables, lightly salt them, squeeze them with your hands in order to bruise the vegetables, break down cell walls, and begin releasing some juices. Once you got them a little juicy after a few minutes of squeezing, stuff them into a vessel. Uh, a pound of vegetables will fill about a pint of a jar, so it would be two pounds to fill up a quart-sized jar. And then give them three or four days before you taste them, but then just start tasting every couple of days. Enjoy the progression of flavors as the acids accumulate. If it ever gets to a point where you don't want it to continue to get more or sour, move it to the refrigerator, the fermentation slowing device that's sitting in your kitchen. So it's that easy. More information on how to make it on my website, which is wildfermentation.com, or in my books, which are Wild Fermentation and The Art of Fermentation, as well as The Revolution Will Not Be Microwaved. And then as we draw this to a close, do you have any final thoughts for the listeners? I would just say that fermentation is an extension of the garden. This is a permaculture podcast, and permaculturalists are interested in working with the earth to produce food and, and meet our other needs. And I, I would just encourage people to just think about all the ways that fermentation is part of this picture. From the very beginning, where fermentation is the source of soil fertility and the renewal of the soil and the recycling of elements, and then on through the product of what's coming off of the trees and the bushes and the plants that we're cultivating. How do we make effective use of them? And fermentation is just a critical piece of the beginning of the process and of the end of the process and what makes them a circle. And so I thank you for your interest. And thank you, Sandor, for joining me. Ever since I read Wild Fermentation several years ago and starting this podcast, I've wanted to interview you. And I'm very thankful for that opportunity and that you would join me today. Thanks for having me on, and, uh, and I've enjoyed it. And that was Sandor Katz. His website is at wildfermentation.com, and all of his books are available through Chelsea Green Publishing. If you're wondering how to make fermented foods, pick up a copy of Wild Fermentation and begin reading. As soon as you encounter something that sounds interesting, try it. Make a small batch. A pint, a liter, a half gallon. However you want to measure it, start somewhere. In doing so, you have the accumulated knowledge of hundreds of generations of humanity behind you, which, for most of our existence, did not have these books, the internet, or even germ theory and microbiology, to inform their thoughts and decisions. You're at a place where fermentation, even doing so with wild cultures, is easier than ever. You can do this. The bacteria and yeast are there to help you make delicious, wonderful foods. Go for it. Then as you get a little bit more experience, I really recommend reading The Art of Fermentation. 
though a large book. It's one that I keep going back to and reading more and more from because of the cultural components of fermentation that go with the foods, ideas, techniques, and recipes that you'll find there. As you go through these processes of transforming foods with fermentation, you might just be surprised what you learn about food and yourself. If along the way you have successes, failures, or questions 